Appamata and its programs are supported by your generosity and your generosity and support makes such a difference. You can find a link for contributions on the website at appamata.org. Thank you. Good morning. It's so lovely to see you uh, and to be in this space with you. <laughs> um, before I dive into my talk today, uh, I just want to take a moment to uh, remind you that we have our All Sangha meeting next Sunday. Um, it's a really important time for us to come together uh, and our board members will be sharing and updates about our community and about some developments and uh, in the our life of our Sangha and also give us a host of practice opportunities. So I strongly encourage you to come, uh, bring a friend, remind a friend. Uh, it's a great opportunity for us to come together. Um, so I thought I'd begin my talk today with a story within a story. One of my favorite authors is a, uh, the late David Foster Wallace. Uh, he gave a now famous commencement speech uh, to the Kenyan college class of 2005. And in it, he sort of gorgeously illuminates um, some portion of our human predicament. Uh, with a tail of fish, here's what he says. There are these two young fish swimming along and they happen to meet an older fish swimming the other way who nods at them and says, morning boys, how's the water? And the two young fish swim on for a bit and then eventually one of them looks over at the other and goes, what the hell is water? Um, commenting on this tale, Wallace says, the immediate point of the fish story is that the most obvious, ubiquitous, important realities are often the ones that are hardest to see and talk about. And I think it's way with, uh, this way with our theme of silent illumination. To practice it is to be a fish aware of the water. It is to acknowledge, meet, and relate to that in which we swim, but often ignore. So, Maybe you're a little bit like me that when you heard Gogu write or write about or Flint and Peg talk about silent illumination uh, as a practice for this practice period, a part of you wanted to throw up. Part of me did. Or maybe it contracted into a tight little wad in your back. Or when you heard about the practice of silent illumination being grounded in contentment, maybe a part of you voiced a story of, oh, I'm not good at that. Or do I really have to? Um, life often feels a lot more like noisy haze to me than silent illumination. Um, and I'm fairly practiced at discontent. So practicing contentment can be like flexing an untrained muscle. Hell, I've been rewarded for brash acts of dissatisfaction in my career and my life in lots of places. I've animated an entire professional life with righteous disgust as what passes for public education for poor kids around the country and disgust and contentment don't seem to make good bedfellows. So a few of my more practiced parts met this call to contentment with some fierce resistance. Maybe you had some resistance too. At this point, I want to make a quick aside. Some of you know me, some don't. Um, I'm an educator by training. I've been a teacher, a principal, a system leader, um, and I now train 
teachers and leaders all around the country. So it's possible during my talk today, I might deploy some of my teacher moves <laughs> uh, and invite a little interaction um, along the way, maybe a raised hand or at least a pause to consider. So I hope that works for you. Um, and as we dive into this theme of silent illumination, I'll offer up a, a teacherly confession first. Uh, I confess to you now that I unwittingly lied to students for years. I taught, um, taught every grade, grade five through 12. I was an ELA teacher, um, uh, English language arts teacher. More accurately, I, I taught them half truths. I fibbed to middle school students, no less. You see, as part of my English teacher duties, I would teach kids parts of speech, which entailed descriptions of nouns and verbs in particular. And it's here where I've been fibbing. So I'll demonstrate for you how I would teach nouns to kids in middle school in particular. I'm gonna slide a little bit because I've got some sun. So when I was teaching them, I'd use a kinesthetic gesture. I'd say, nouns are people, places, ideas, or things. And I'd point outward like this. So people, places, ideas, or things. A really simple kind of kinesthetic gesture. And then I teach them verbs by saying, verbs show action or state of being. And this is before I was practicing, but they got it instantly. Um, and I taught them that noun thing, that noun thing, a little gimmicky, yes, but I pointed away from myself and I realized that it's with the nouns that I find myself now to be a little bit of a liar. You see, as we dive into this practice, our assumption of thingness starts to come into question. Nouns seem less familiar. Uh, sure, in the conventional sense, things exist. I can hold a pen or embrace a person or conceptualize social justice, for instance, but with a little sitting or maybe a lot of sitting, this kind of thingness comes into question. These things start to appear more as conventions than hard realities. And the practice of silent illumination, at least in my experience, dissolved this thingness in particular. But you may wonder what all this has to do with fish and contentment and whatnot. A good question. And Gogu has something to say about that. So I'm just going to read a small portion from silent illumination. Contentment counters and overrides our constant tendency to grasp and chase after things. Contentment has the flavor of being at ease, grasping nothing, lacking nothing. It is being open and leisurely. It is in this, in this state, we don't make anything into a big deal, while at the same time we engage with the freshness of each moment. Cultivating an attitude of contentment is engaging with and yet not grasping at causes and conditions. The last line seems important. So cultivating an attitude of contentment is engaging with and yet not grasping causes and conditions. He goes on to describe the three attributes of uh, contentment the Master of Hui Ning describes in the platform scripture, no thought, no form, and non-abiding. And it's this teaching around no form that I'd like to dwell with you a bit today to unpack the problematic thingness that we seem to misapply in our daily lives, or at least I do. So if this Dharma attack had a title, it would be, what if there are no things? 
And it's this question, among others, that silent illumination invites us to consider. How would we live differently if we took seriously an understanding that what we call things, solid as they feel, are more accurately interactions? How might we live if we seriously take what Analeo calls our process character? In short, how might we live when we understand quite literally that there are no things? And to be clear and a little redundant, I'm suggesting that things really truly do not exist. Our experience of fixed thingness itself is a result of particular causes and conditions, many of them psychological, more of them physical. We are subject to physical forces which beget certain kinds of experiences. Gravity, motion, time all have their due. And within these forces, seemingly static forms appear unceasingly solid. Mountains, water, tractor trailers, and beautiful strangers all appear to us to be constant and separate. Uh, physicist Carlo Rovelli describes this beautifully in his book, Helgoland. And I'm gonna ask um, Nancy, if you can pop up that quote, that first one on the slide, it'd be great. So I'd love for you to all see it. Cool, thanks. So here's Carlo Rovelli is a brilliant physicist. If you've uh, encountered his book, Helgoland or uh, Seven Brief Lessons About Physics, I think is the other title, brilliant stuff. But here's, here's one quote that really resonated with me in his work. We think of the world in terms of objects, things, entities. In physics, we call them physical systems. A photon, a cat, a stone, a clock, a tree, a boy, a village, a rainbow, a planet, a cluster of galaxies. These do not exist in splendid isolation. On the contrary, they do nothing but continuously act upon each other. To understand nature, we must focus on these interactions rather than isolated objects. And so here's my first invitation to engage and interact a little bit here. So just take a moment to pause and consider where have you experienced interactions that transcended particular people, places, and things? Just sit with the question for a full minute and see what you recall, see what shows up in your body. So I'm curious, and I'd love to hear from you for a minute. Yep, in the middle of the talk, not just at the end. Where have you experienced things that have transcended particular people, places, or things? Where does that sort of resonate with you and your experience? If you just want to raise your hand, you can close this, Nancy, so folks can raise their hand and we can see them a little. I'd love to hear from two or three folks. Okay, um, Monica. Um, yeah, what came to mind was when uh, Mitch and I sing in a community choir, I mean, it's like everything's melded into one, the space around us, the visual, the vibrate, it's just one thing, and that's what popped up. Ah, I love that. Thank you. Yeah. 
we have uh, n. wasn't able to identify something that wasn't associated with a place or a person or a thing. I mean, I feel like all my experiences are products mm. of that, of what, where I am, what I see, what I hear, what I smell, what I taste, what I feel. So those so to identify something that's totally independent mm -hmm. of the sense realm seems, I, I, I don't, I can't do that. I mean, I don't, yeah. I'm not able to do that. Yeah, great. <laughs> Thanks, yeah. We have Becky next. Hi, Becky. Hi. Um, I, I, like Monica said, that one of the things that came to my mind was when singing with other people uh, is, a, is a time. But also when meditating with other people, I've experienced it. And doing Qigong with other people, mm. there, and and some moments when I first knew I was in a setting like a magnificent forest or sitting on rocks next to the ocean, that I have some moments where all of the things disappear and the experience of the moment utterly and without, I mean, somehow without, and I don't, I, it's something that's always just felt a little, you know, odd to me when I experienced it and yet really, really felt amazing. Yeah. And, and then I didn't know what to do with it necessarily, but I just helped. I just had it. It's, yeah. So those, those are the ones that I have experienced that I think relate to what you're talking about. Yeah. I I had one when I first came to Appamata, it was a disorienting sort of dissolution of things in the first Dharma talk when I was here, which caught my eye, it <laughs> caught my interest, right? So thank you. I think Nelda, I'm gonna have you be the last one for now. And Jess and Kim, I'll give you, there'll be more opportunities in a little bit, but Nelda, what are you thinking? Ah, <laughs> oh, there it is. Good morning, Nate. Good morning. I don't know if this is what your question is referring to. Words are tricky sometimes. Mm -hmm. um, but I had what I call an experience at two very disparate places. Um, one was um, Machu Picchu. Mm. So, and I asked myself if I was getting, if I was maybe a little high from the mountain air, but it wasn't that. <laughs> it was the confluence of the sky and the, and, and that at one time sacred place, maybe still. Mm -hmm. and, and then it all fell away. 
and just this energetic sense was left and 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 quite in contrast um, to a place in a natural setting the other place was at the sagrada familia cathedral in barcelona mm. um, walked in there and at first was struck by the artistry of the things and the sounds and so on but then became the only other word is the same word struck by the energy that had created that place and was there holding that place so those two places thanks Nola. um with this kind of talk when i'm when you're talking about uh interaction sort of uh, uh and the sort of dissolution of things, it's easy to slip into abstraction. And I'm quoting a quantum physicist. <laughs> so abstraction kind of comes in here. But my hunch is that most of us can recall an experience or in fact, even maybe find ourselves living in a space where things feel less solid. Uh, and that the conventional everyday reality opens up to the possibility of a reality that's somehow kind of more real. So later, Rovelli writes in Helgoland, the world we know that relates to us, that interests us, that we call reality, is the vast web of interacting entities of which we are a part that manifest themselves by interacting with each other. It is with this web that we are dealing. It's pretty gorgeous, right? And, and as I heard it the first time, I said, man, it sounds so much like Indra's net. For Ravelli, there are no things to speak of, just webs of interaction. For the Buddha describing Indra's net, each jewel contains and reflects the whole world, and the whole reflects and contains each jewel. And it's fascinating to see these sort of insights from physics and our practice come up together. What we experience as things are more accurately interactions that appear static, that are anything but all phenomena and arise and cease together. When attuned to this, we experience things as it is, as Suzuki Roshi famously said forms start to slip away. In writing of form of no form, Gogu sounds strangely like a physicist, or perhaps Ravelli sounds strangely like a Buddhist, I'm not sure which, but yours, Gogu. Uh, and Nancy, if you want to put that second slide up, that'd be great, so folks can read along too. So no form is a teaching on how to relate to the external world. Ordinarily, we grasp appearances and characteristics as discrete things, but there's not re there's really not a single thing. Nothing is fixed. There is no fixed objective reality to transform within the context of form is a teaching on not denying or divorcing ourselves from form, but allowing all appearances and characteristics to be without us contaminating them with our projections, ideas, or feelings. We must engage with the world while at the same time we have no vexations about it. When there's room for improvement, we try our best to improve the world of form. When things need to change, we make the change. But emotional afflictions lead to more vexations. They contaminate and ruin everything we see, hear, smell, taste, and touch. And so a second question for you, just for folks who are curious, what in particular resonates uh, with you from this passage from Gogu's line uh, offering here? 
Feel free to raise your hands, share. Hi, John Eric. Uh, I really resonated with the line to engage with the world, but have no vexations around it. Mm. Not saying just give up and float in nothingness. Still engage, but don't attach if you can help it. Thanks. Rosemary. Hi, Rosemary. Hi, good morning. Um, yeah, like with John Eric, um, the idea of engaging, and I think it's very subtle because um, conditioning, for example, is something that I think um, is important to um, face, obviously, and um, but not to grasp. And then, so I don't know how that fits in with form, but um, that usually is provoked by interactions. And um, so, yeah, I think there's a lot of subtlety in, in what you just, in the quote, because there's, there's engagement, there's um, being aware of not grasping and trying to transform, you know, how we're responding into, um, uh, something that I guess eventually transcends um, the whatever's bothering us or what the vexation oh. might be. Yeah. Right. Like a, a, a shift kind a of shift. I like the yeah. shift. Yeah. Thank you. Jess, wrap up with you. Hi, Jess. Hi. Hello. Okay. Can you hear me? Yep. Oh, great. Okay. Uh, that last slide, uh, what popped for me was that uh, there, he talks about no form and he says that this is not denying or divorcing ourselves from form. And so that popped to me about uh, what Anne was saying that, you know, when we think about these experiences that transcend people, places, things that all of the places or things that I could think about were in context of form and uh -huh. that idea of uh, like form is emptiness, emptiness is form, everything is like, uh, yeah, every, every thing is a, uh, uh, <laughs> everything has sort of a, it has a form and we interplay with it. And I was thinking about you, this, this experience, I was thinking like, you know, here you are, you're talking and giving this practice discussion. And then all of a sudden this light comes, you know, and boy, was it coming and shining all in your face <laughs> here and there and, uh, and uh, how that kind of changed what was happening. Uh -huh. And then, you know, I put my headphones on to hear it. And then when you were talking about like this discontent and content, I had feelings come up within me and then how am I relating to my feelings relating <laughs> to you and all of this interplay interrelation uh, was one of these experiences that transcend but is still couched in form right so that was um anyways that's what I wanted to share. Thanks Jess. 
as I read this passage, there are a couple of things that pop out. Uh, so the if you first Grogu and Robelli sound eerily similar, the lines about nothing is fixed, no objective reality sounds a lot like the vast web of interacting entities. So that's interesting. I think the second thing that really lands with me is this language of contamination, which elicits a particular kind of embodied response from me. Uh, some of me starts to clench around even just reading that word. Um, but there's more recognition with it. Um, so here's the story of personal contamination. My son, Parker, who will turn three later this month, is a beautiful and loving whirlwind of joyous madness. Uh, he tends to, as most toddlers do, engage with the world in ways that perplex and vex my adult expectations. Chopsticks are used as racetrack obstacles. Strange animal sounds emerge frequently during dinner conversation. And bathrooms are public domain at all times for all people, even guests to the house. Um, and sometimes I lose my marbles and rebuke him for being something other than what I want. Uh, at almost three. And in so during, I turn, I turn this vivacious human process into a thing. I make him an impediment, a difficulty, a nuisance. I move from experiencing and relating to him to trying to control or explain him. And the parents present already know this, trying to predict and explain and control. The maelstrom of toddlerhood is a fool's errand, not a good use of time. But when I turn my son into a thing, if I, he feels it when I turn him into a nuisance. And the quality of our relating shifts dramatically. The interaction becomes shrouded in preference and he knows it and he feels the shift in my presence and he responds accordingly. Sometimes he withdraws, sometimes he resists, uh, but it changes things. Gogu says more uh, of this contamination. Uh, this is the last one to put up, I think, Nancy, last long quote. This is one just to sit with. How do we contaminate forms and appearances? We defile them by attaching to them, reifying them as things out there. When we make everything into a thing, everything we can touch, every touch can become a problem. For example, I have a student who makes a big deal out of everything. Every task she takes on, however small, she makes it into a thing. And it's always a struggle, always complicated because she overthinks things. I have another student and for him, everything he encounters is not a big deal. Yet because he feels it is not a big deal, all sorts of unexpected things come up and he makes mistakes. Still, that doesn't really bother him. Both attitudes are problematic. Both follow their own ideas about things out there. Both have contaminated the form with their own habit tendencies. This is not the meaning of no form. Engage with forms and appearances, do what is appropriate, but without grasping onto fixed ways of doing things. Let me print that last one because it feels one like a line you want to settle into your bones. Engage with forms and appearances and do what is appropriate, but without grasping onto fixed ways of doing things. Maybe you problematize like Gogu's first student, or maybe you shrug things off. Maybe your expression of this um, contamination is different. Maybe you've noticed how you contaminate your own connections with others, as I do with my son sometimes, or 
lose the ability to taste a delicious meal or stop seeing and hearing the beauty of the natural world or generally just stop experiencing. This seems to happen when we turn interactions into objects. Here's what I've noticed lately. I notice a lot of my problems and the problems of those around me, uh, voices, complaints, follow a similar format, namely that they are, the nouns won't stop verbing. What I mean by that is, Parker won't stop fussing. My boss won't stop micromanaging me. The damn dogs won't stop barking. The dishwasher won't stop clunking. And on and on and on. We fabricate a sort of certainty when we glom onto interactions and make them things in our mind. We give them solidity. The nouns won't stop verbing and we just get terribly upset by it. We cast ourselves as the separate and distinct subjects in a world of objects engaged in actions that defy our preferences, which only creates things everywhere. But lately, as a result of this illumination practice, and I'm conscious of the illumination I'm experiencing right now, which is perfectly timed. Uh, as a result of this silent illumination practice, I'm curious about uh, what happens when I first just drop the nouns from my problems. Something shifts in just noticing the verbs. I draw a little closer to experiencing when there's just fussing arising or micromanaging or barking. And if I'm particularly skillful, the verbs don't even matter that much. And there's just experiencing the sights and sounds and feelings of being engaged with an ever-changing toddler or a goofy loud dog. There's noting the squeeze in the lower back and the secretion of foul thought that comes when the boss comes to follow up on a task and so on. When contentment is present, even the verbs mean less, but most days I'm content just to move away from nouns and towards verbs. Uh, something that feels like honoring or maybe shows up like dignity emerges in the recognition of the flow of causes and conditions. There's something that avails itself to us through this practice of silent illumination. I notice that when we sit in dignified repose, contentment naturally arises after a bit, and out of that contentment, things lose solidity, which is gorgeous to behold if even in glimpses. As I heard a, a student at a, an intensive, at the end of an intensive or retreat once say, the trees are just beautifully treeing, and the birds are just birding, are always birding. Gogu reminds me that silent illumination is always available, always accessible, not so unlike the fish in the water. Silent illumination is just the natural, lively expression of moment-to-moment -moment experiencing. Technically, we cannot cultivate it. It is simply what we do, moment-to-moment -moment experiencing. So, causes and conditions refresh themselves moment-by-moment, moment, and we're blessed to be here experiencing each one of them. I'm thankful for this practice and for this beautiful Sangha, and I'm grateful that we can experience a few moments together this morning. Thank you very much. Uh, so I thought I'd just sort of open up to what are things that are arising for you, um, anything that's coming up or things you want to say in response to this chat. And if there's, if it's helpful to have a question or two, you can think about where you've experienced being caught by things and forms or where you've experienced freedom from those things and forms. But curious to hear. Yeah, um, a couple of years ago, um, 
I discovered that a colleague of mine from St. Louis was a hoarder and actually was on the hoarder um, series oh. on TV. And I watched it a couple of years ago. <coughs> and then I watched it again last night because her son was actually uh, uh, doing some work for, for another friend and realized a completely different um, response where the first time there was 37 tons of, of stuff removed from her house to give you a wow. you know, little idea of, of it took a whole crew days and days and days just to clear it out. Okay, so two years ago, I saw her as a form, as a thing. And I realized, uh, and then I watched it last night and I had tremendous feelings of sadness and compassion toward her when I realized there was, it was different. She wasn't a form, but I just saw the interaction, the uh, mm. relationship. I remembered times we had spent together. Um, and I think that's really the key here is that you can't have compassion if you're just seeing the thing as an external form, but rather, rather needing to see the interaction itself as the thing. That's kind of what I'm getting from, from this process. I love that. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah. Monica. Can you hear me? Yes. All right. So just, um, I just want to comment on some, a quick thing is that as you were speaking and talking about the interbeing, um, when the lights came on your face, I'm very visual. I, I started saying, that's Indira's net. Each of those reflections was already, you were right in the middle. We were all reflecting. I wasn't even thinking of the trees. I was just seeing reflections between every interaction of us here on the Zoom. And um, I just wanted to offer that. Um, and then you started talking about Indira's net. So I just, I mean, talk about connection. That was a visual part of it. <laughs> Nice in nature to comply with the teaching. <laughs> Anything else that's coming up for you that are wondering about or thinking about? John Derry. I had a question come up, which was, um, not necessarily a question you need to answer, but just a question that arose in my awareness was, where do I get caught in perfection and where do I get caught in shrugging things off too much? Oh. And, and how do I know, you know, to steer the rudder one way or the other? Yeah. Um, it was a very interesting practice question. No, I might need to write that one down. Uh, how did you answer it, start to play with it yourself as you were entertaining the question? Yeah, I don't really have a solid answer for it. Really just, <laughs> <laughs> I think for me, I just felt the, um, the need to be, to get still, you know, and, and just really sit with that and how, you know, where can I feel into, am I shrugging this off too much? Where, can I, where am I caught in perfectionism, which is, or what I'm calling perfectionism, you know, in those examples. It just seems like a, a good inquiry to hold, which 
when thinking about nouns and, and actions. That resonates with me as I'm leading my first Sunday service here today. Oh, the perfectionist tendencies in me are on high alert. <laughs> uh, and the part of me that wants to just sort of shrug off the missteps or whatever, too, is also activated right side by side. So mm -hmm. I, I so appreciate that question. What a mm -hmm. fun one. In next. Hey, hey. So the question I had had to do with the very end of the Gaogu quote about the fixed way of doing things, not having a fixed way of doing things. And it, it dovetails nicely with what you were talking about, about the forms. So uh, the question that came to me was, what is the nature of tradition? What is the nature of form? If in, in the context of not being bound by a fixed way of doing things, I mean, how do we hold both of those things? And again, like John Eric, it's not a question I expect you to answer, but that really struck me. Well, I'm curious how you how you're questioning that because I have a response based on this morning to that. But I'm curious how did you how are you thinking about what's the what's the place of tradition or form? I don't really know. I think. Um, an American Western sensibility about it is pretty different mm. than an Eastern um, Japanese or Chinese sensibility about it, um, which in itself is a way of answering that question, but it's all conditions. Yeah. Um, I think I think it's a way of taking care of things. I think it's a way of being very mindful, but also being fully engaged, but taking care, being very lovingly careful about things. Yeah. I think the, what was um, coming up for me as you were saying that was thinking about the forms here this morning and how they, they create uh, they make certain kinds of experiencing possible. Like without the form, I'm not sure those sorts of experience would be, they might be available, but they seem to sort of reliably create a set of causes and conditions where certain kinds of experience that we can connect to that even ancestors have experienced and are sharing with us. So that, that's just one thing that came, is coming from me as you say that. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah, I was thinking about the whole idea of doing something because it feels right. Uh, I want to, as opposed to doing the thing that presents itself before us. Yeah. Not, not being pulled around by, well, do I feel called to do this? Does this resonate with my bliss? Does, but just to say, okay, this is the thing that is here and I will do it, and I will take loving care of it. Mm. Maria. Hi, Maria. 
Hi. Yeah, you've done, it just made me, uh, it, as you were talking today, it just made me think of um, my daughter's school bag. I mean, she's 32 now. But when I was tidying out the garage the other, the other week, um, I found her little school bag. And um, and it's like, it's got, you know, it's got the red round it. It's got a little bit of blue on it. It's kind of like, I, can I ever just see the school bag as the bag? Because as, as I looked at it, all the memories of walking her to school, of her putting a change in that little pocket where the bird is, you know, a little dinner money. Yeah. And, you know, and the little things she used to put into the bag and remembering her getting into the car and she'd just throw it on the back seat. And it was like, can I ever really just see that bag mm. as that bag, you know, without everything else? And and it's kind of like, and that's just a thing. That's an object that I'm looking at. Now, you have a person who's showing us what they wish to show us. They're, they're talking, they're moving. And then everything they're doing is eliciting something in us. So it's kind of whatever they're doing is bringing up something in us. And I think without the practice and without being able to slow ourselves down enough, how are we ever going to just really see mm. another person and rather than it being all tangled up with our own reactions and our own stuff, if with a bag, we can't just have, this is just a bag. This is just a red, bag with a bird on it and that's all it is you know I could never see that bag like that it has so much around it so that it's like I said without the practice it's impossible I feel it's impossible to ever see or experience another person as them if we never slow down enough or take that time to really just get to know what it is we do and what happens within us and what our own reactions are you know, and what's them and what's us, you know, and what's the between. How can we ever do that without, you know, we do this, don't we? How can we ever do it without slowing down and mm -hmm. sitting and just being with? So that's what all this is. <laughs> can I ever just see that bag as that bag? <laughs> My son just got his first backpack literally a week ago. And so, and he's in love with it. He loves to bring it to daycare and put a toy into it. And just take one toy out and share it with his friend but that's i'm already that bag is not just a bag anymore <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> good luck when he's 32 with that bag. <laughs> <laughs> thank you thank you hi there hi <laughs> Um, when you talked about uh, Peg and Flint's talk about silent illuminations and all your reactions that came up, you know, mine was just, uh, it was so over my head. And I just, you know, and slightly embarrassed about why can't I get it? Like, I don't even understand what they're saying, you know? And was that me grasping? I don't know. But it was, it was you know, I have to revisit their talk because so much just went over. But when you put up that first slide, um, and you talked about uh, trans transcendence. Um, for me, it was much like Becky had said that, you know, when I'm in nature, um, I lose everything. Everything seems to shed. And I think about, um, you know, all the possibilities or it's like, it's like my mind opens up. And then I immediately think about Suzuki Roshi and his idea or commentary on big mind. Uh -huh. I'm like, huh. 
I struggled with that for so long. Like, what does he mean by big mind? And I wonder, is that what it is? And then is it related to silent illumination? Yeah. Um, and I don't know. That's just what came up for me. So that was it. Oh, and I've never been to Tassajara, but I've been near Tassajara and I have that sense of being in nature and immersed in that and kind of wonder, I can almost see him talking about big mind in that context. Mm -hmm. I'm like, oh yeah, it's, this is unavoidable. It's all right there. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Thank you. Hi, Neda. Well, thank you so much for bringing this. Um, what brought to me all this is really the sensations and perception in my body, mm. in every action that I'm doing in my life. You know, any experience with form is basically what do I feel? What are those very tone things in my body? So I'm just or I'm just practicing more and more for the last couple of years with that. Mm -hmm. And just, it's amazed me every time how my body just pulled me to wherever it is. Mm -hmm. And I don't say it's all the time because the conditions are coming, you know, conditions comes and goes. But when I'm just with that sensations in my body responding to the form, mm -hmm. I can see I can dive completely in that what you're saying that um, Carlo, the physicist, mm -hmm. there is no distinction one, one to another. And it's when we can sometimes experience with satsang. I, I love that. And it's a, I, I've always struggled into the embodied aspects of our practice were, uh, are only now starting to sort of come online after a decade of doing this. I, there's a, a really good quote by Ken Robinson, who's a famous educator, uh, who says that uh, professors look at um, their bodies as sort of a transport for their heads, <laughs> for their heads and their thoughts. Right? And I think I've lived in that space. So I, 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 I love the way you're describing listening to your body that way. Yes. Thank you. And it's, it's, a, it's a practice. Thank you. Hi, Joel. Hi, Nate. I, I want to say thank you for such a wonderful talk and how it's opening up so much and, and, I, and how much, how lively this discussion is and how it, it, you, you found a way to connect with things that are really enlivening for, for so many of us. It's uh, delightful. Uh, and I just wanted to say that I'm connecting particularly with a couple of things that, that Anne was talking about before, that the that part of what I take because of my habit of mind from the, the Buddhist teaching is that we are, that we exist only through our contacts with, with external objects. You know, we hear sounds, we touch. We, we have sensations of touch, we have sensations of taste, etc. And that, you know, within that envelope, as it were, there's a, that, that there's a great mystery, you know, 
It's like, who, who's in, who's in, you know, not only is it a great mystery of what's out there, but who's in here? Uh, if all we get is this kind of, is, is these, these uh, sense perceptions rattling around, you know, and, and, and bumping into each other and then giving us the idea that we have a separate self that's perceiving them all, you know? Uh, and, and, and then I'm, I'm also kind of like the, I, I, I want to say that I, I felt a big resonance for the, uh, the student that Guo Gu was talking about, who makes a big deal out of everything. Mm -hmm. uh, that, that part of that, that notion that we are uh, made up of the residue of our uh, sensory experiences and, and reactions to them and reactions to those reactions, et cetera, et cetera. That, um, that, that, that there's, a, there's a sense of kind of tragedy in that, you know, mm -hmm. that, that, we, that, that it ends up that, that it's like a hall of mirrors or something that we can't get outside that. Mm. But, but then finally, the, I just, I, I love what Anne said before that, that, yeah, all that may be true, but we can take loving care of what's in front of us right now. Yeah. You know, that was so great. So that's, that's my thought. Well, and that, no, that reminds me of Todd's talk last week. Just do his wish for us at the end of the talk was just do the next thing, do the next thing that's in front of you. I love that. Thanks, Joel. Um, Rosemary, we'll finish with you and then we'll wrap up. Hi, I just wanted to second something that Kim said about um, when he first saw uh, the show about uh, his colleague and how that shifted from him for him two years later, um, that that compassion had developed within him. And I was thinking of when I was sitting today, I was thinking of um, holding on that that um, it's the holding on to to anything, to to vexations, to um, uh, fixed ideas of people, things, ourselves that is getting in the way of compassion. So you have this, you know, field and um, it's going to be diminished mm. right away by any, any um, grasping. These things have to be faced and addressed and understood. Um, but um, yeah, you can tell when it's, when you're in it and um, it's, it gets right in the way of the most important thing. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you all so much for such a wonderful conversation and discussion. Um, let's uh, close out together. Well, I thought I'd hang around for just a minute or two and see if anybody else wanted to check in and say hello. <laughs> there we go. There we are. There. Hi. Hey. Third time's a charm. <laughs> uh, I just wanted to say thank you, Nate. This was a, a phenomenal um, subject, and, and I love the way that you wove in the, the quantum physics piece. I always find that so very compelling and uh, an incredible match for our, our path and our teaching. So thank you. I just wanted to thank you also, Nate, for 
stepping up as head student and for speaking today. Uh, I got a lot out of it. And I, I think I really appreciated the, because I've been very involved with language, you know, as a speech therapist all my life, the noun and verbing thing. And I've got all kinds of ideas about how to apply it in my daily life. Like when I call myself a something, to remove the noun and just look at what I'm doing, you know, stuff like that. Oh, but thank you very much. Enjoyed it today. Darcy, since you're, we don't have hands raised, if anybody else wants to jump in, if you want to call on somebody else, just check in and say hello. You're welcome to just see what's moving for people who are around. Say hi. Nilda, your video is not on. My video is not on? Okay. I'm going to echo the thank yous, Nate. It was lovely. It rem What you brought and what created this amazing gumbo um, with all that everyone shared, because it was exactly what you were talking about, that confluence of being with all that is as it is and how it created something exponentially more wonderful without it being a thing between and among us so thank you for starting that conversation thank you everyone yeah thank you Nate. it was uh, as joe colbeck once said at the end of a talk she asked if anybody had anything to say and there was just silence <laughs> she said she said well i think i've gone and knocked everyone out and I, <laughs> and I think that's how i feel a bit about your talk like this it's so rich and there was so much in it that it will move in me over the next few days and and things will just will come up and then it'll be like a few days later i'll be like oh you know i'll have a question or i'll have something coming up but it was so rich and it like i said it's still it's still moving so yeah thank you very much for that for this talk it's been wonderful good yeah thank nick uh for sharing your um your contaminating experience with your um with your son i have it with my kitty <laughs> he, he has the habit to, <laughs> to keep doing things that i don't like it I was like, uh, like especially you know like <laughs> he likes to spill water out um like the water on the floor is more than what's in his mouth most of the time and i have to keep cleaning up so every single time I have to force him and like okay listen here's the lesson you need to learn you shouldn't do it anymore it's not like that. <laughs> but it did not work at all <laughs> figure out the solution for that you'll be a very wealthy woman <laughs> thanks Nancy but it's amazing, isn't it, how our perceptions change? Like, you know, when um, I've got all the time in the world and I'm driving somewhere and everything's fine, people are coming out in front of me, it's fine. And then we're in a rush 
and we need to get to an appointment and then it's like oh gosh this person's in front of us and all oh, this person's driving so slow how our whole perceptions and the way we interact with the world can change depending on where we're coming from inside ourselves or how we're approaching the situation this i was just gonna um with my kiddo, I'll notice my wife and I walk into the room, you know, from different places, having had different experiences, and then we have the same child and totally different experiences of the same child based on whatever nonsense we're bringing from the, you know, our previous experience. Often my wife is the wonderful doting one and I'm the, you know, snippy one who wants something to be cleaner than it is or whatever. <laughs> so, mm-hmm. love that. Traffic is the eternal teacher. Mm. (laughs) Anything else? Pop it up for folks. So what's really challenging for me is the confluence of form and emptiness or of small mind, big mind, and how it's so easy to think of, of silent illumination as just being one or the other, you know, like big, but it really, this, this combination is just really difficult. So I might be so engrossed in the feeling about my colleague that I forget about her, or I might be so engrossed about, oh, this was my colleague that I forget about the feeling, you know, but how that's something that I, you know, I know I need to keep digging at thinking about figuring out uh being with being with how to do that is really a challenge so next time i see you i'm going to ask you how you do that <laughs> okay okay at least you teed me up okay i appreciate that you know, the, when you're describing that kim you know the thing that why i like the physics thing so much and Rivelli talks about the Newtonian physics versus quantum physics. Like, you know, Newtonian physics, like apple falls from the tree, hits you in the head. Well, yeah, that's true. Inside of a set of, you know, particular conditions, in a conventional sense, that's true for us. Quantum physics blows that up in the, you know, universal sense, but both are actually true. So. And the uh, first one gives you a bump on your head, right? Yeah, that's right. It feels very real, <laughs> even if it is apparently less so. <laughs> All right. Any other thoughts, wonderings, check ins? So lovely to spend this time with you all. Have a lovely afternoon. <laughs>